I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. Summer update. Rock climbing and river islands are still pretty great, while the wildfire smoke is not my favorite. I've been writing every day this summer, working on the sequel to my novel, American Afterlife, but I need to stop for a moment to tell you three unbelievable stories, one from this spring, one from my childhood, and one from last night. This is podcast episode 35. I've been climbing at the columns for a long time, and I climb there a lot, so I've seen pretty much everything. Everything from moms playing their three-year-olds to a 22-year-old guy who has no climbing ability, free soloing, to a man shooting heroin under the oak tree at the base. One night I was climbing after dark by myself, just running solo laps by headlamp. There were a group of guys up above the cliff. I didn't know they were there at first, but they were drinking and they started throwing their beer bottles off the top and they were shattering right next to me. So I've seen pretty much everything at the columns, except this spring I saw something new. My friend Hira and I had just finished a climb, so we were both untied at the base of the cliff when we heard a car, an SUV coming from the summit road, coming down the road going way, way too fast. To make it into downtown Eugene off that summit road, you have to make a full U-turn, like 180-degree turn at this three-way convergence right by the columns. So this guy was coming way too fast, and there happened to be a car going up from the third lane. And so he tried to swerve left around this car made it, skidded, then still tried to make the U-turn without slowing down. And as he came around the U-turn, he went up on the embankment to the left, just barely missed another car head-on, went behind that car, in between another car, and off the cliff, the lower cliff, through the oak trees, did a full front flip in his car and landed inside the apartment building. It was so loud, the collision with the apartment building, this SUV driving into somebody's kitchen. And here and I were at the base of the cliff and we were untied, so we both just sprinted down there. We ran past the U-turn, got to the lower cliff, right the oak trees, and we slid down the steep grass and hopped down the rocks got down to the car, and as we got to the car, we both thought, there's going to be so much blood. This car is smashed into the apartment building, into a kitchen, and right as Hira and I get up to the car, the driver's door pops open, and this guy hops out, not covered in blood, no blood at all, just a guy with dreadlocks, and he's like, Ah, and then he just falls to his knees. 
So I tell him, you, you got to lie down, lie down. You could have internal injuries. I don't just lay down here. Got him to lay down for a second. But then he got back to his knees and he just starts sobbing. And he's just on his knees there in the grass next to his SUV, crashed into an apartment building, sobbing. Here his friend Anna's calling the police. They're trying to get a fire truck and an ambulance there. And he's on his knees crying. So I'm just hugging this guy, total stranger. And he's crying and telling me that he just wanted to make art and that he was just getting high and making art up at the summit for like four hours and it was so beautiful. And then he decided to drive down and he was going too fast and couldn't afford to wreck his car. And I'm hugging him going, yeah, but we should get you to lie down because you might be really, really injured, especially if you're high, you don't know how injured you are. And he just keeps crying and he's like sobbing and snotting and just racked with his crying. And so here and I are trying to get him to calm down and lay down. And finally, a fire truck and an ambulance get there. And the EMTs jog up and start to talk to him and start to talk to us. And as soon as they find out that he's high, which is pretty obvious, he's really high. He spent four hours getting high. But as soon as they realize that he's high, they're just like, eh, whatever. And they're like, we'll just wait for the cops and arrest him. And they don't even check him out. And here and I are like, y'all should check him out. I mean, we described the crash. It was insane. And they're like, mm, we'll just let the cops arrest him. The first year that we lived in Tucson when I was a kid, my dad was at school at the University of Arizona. And we lived north of town on seven acres that were owned by a professor who was on sabbatical for the year. And on these seven acres, there was a long dirt drive to make it up the hill, and it crossed an arroyo. So there was this dry wash, except for the monsoon season, when with boards laid down, you could maybe cross the wash if the flooding wasn't too bad and you were in a serious four-wheel drive vehicle. So my parents decided to get this beat-up old 1967 Land Rover that they named Elsa the Lion. And we drove in Elsa the Lion across the Arroyo if it was flooded, if we could. But oftentimes it was too flooded during the monsoons, and we didn't drive this car too much. We mostly reserved it for times when my dad wasn't in school or studying, when he could take him, my mom, and the four kids out, and we would explore the desert, them trading off driving, as we went over incredible four-wheel drive roads in the desert in that old 1967 Land Rover. So I loved Elsa, and it was really sad when we moved to Seattle and sold Elsa the Land Rover, and instead got an ancient Buick that we nicknamed the Ick, because it was disgusting. And my dad had gotten it for $1 because it has a soft top and the soft top leaked. And so the floorboards were covered in mold and it always smelled bad in that car. 
So the two years we lived in Seattle, we drove the ick everywhere. It was cheap. One dollar is a pretty cheap car. But it smelled terrible, and it was best when we had all the windows down. So one day, my mom had all four kids in the car and our giant dog, Spunky, a big Irish setter mix that was huge, horse-like. And he was always at my feet because he was my dog and I loved him the most. So Spunky was at my feet and we were driving back from picking up my sister at school. And this often took a while in rush hour traffic. But this day it took forever and my mom had brought snacks. And so I was eating a bag of Cheetos and I was eating one Cheeto for me, one Cheeto for my dog Spunky, one Cheeto for me, one Cheeto for my dog Spunky. And we were stuck in rush hour traffic. And eventually, with the smell of the Ix floorboard mold and the hot smell of Cheetos and me just trying to kind of get fresh air and us all rolling down the windows and Spunky just being crowded in by four kids in the backseat and all of us eating snacks, eventually he vomited. And what he vomited was regurgitated ropey rubber bandy Cheetos onto my lap. So Spunky dog vomited onto my lap, all these Cheetos, and I'm taking my two hands and scooping the vomit and throwing it out the window as we're stuck in traffic on I-5. So I remember being stuck in that car for hours with that horrific vomit smell, with all the windows down, us trying to get fresh air, the smell of the Ix molded floorboards, and it was absolutely disgusting. And I recently retold that story to my dad, talking about how I couldn't eat Cheetos for 20 years after that, after Spunky had vomited it onto my lap. And he said, oh, you don't remember the other part? And I was like, no. I, I just remember all of us hanging our heads out the window and trying to get clear of the smell of mold and vomited Cheetos. And he goes, oh, well, the reason y'all were stuck in that car for four hours that day and how you couldn't even get off an off-ramp is there was the Seattle's freeway shooter that day. And up in front of you, a man had been on the overpass with a rifle. And then I remembered it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. I remember there was a man camped up on an overpass with a hunting rifle, and he just started shooting random cars that were driving by until he'd shot enough windshields. Cars wrecked and skidded to a stop. The police came, and everybody was stuck on that freeway, not able to go anywhere at all for four hours until they arrested the freeway shooter. Then there's last night, which is a two-part story, both of them weird. So part one starts again with my friend Hira, who was paddleboarding the middle fork with her friend when she saw what she told me were the biggest trout she'd ever seen. So she sent me a pin and said, you would love it here. And she also sent me a picture and it looked gorgeous. It was a series of kind of stair-stepped islands and runs. And I was like, oh, that looks amazing. So I messaged my friends who like to fly fish. 
and this section of the river is inaccessible by road. No road within a mile and a half of there. So to get there, you'd either have to hike or bike and then explore these river islands. So my friend Ben and I decide that we're going to do this together. So I bike from my house, and it's, you know, about a seven-mile bike ride. But the first five and a half are through town, out Eugene, out through Springfield, over this really big hill, and then down into a section by the Middle Fork called Doris Ranch. So the last mile and a half is in Doris Ranch on a gravel road, paved bike path, gravel, and then paves again. And so I'm exploring out there, and it's really, really remote. This is an area that not very many people go to. And the way you can tell that a place outside is pretty remote is when you can't find a single piece of human garbage. So I realized that it's actually going to be pretty hard to meet up with my friend Ben because I've gone on these series of paths that were both paved and unpaved. And the final one was this little deer trail to the river that I was hacking through grass and blackberry bushes just to get there. And I stash my bike and lock it, which is kind of funny because nobody else is going to be there except maybe Ben, if he can even follow my directions. So I text him after I lock my bike and I say, this is where I went. These are the series of paths. This is where I am. Hopefully we can meet up at 630 like you planned. And then I get on this little tree and I walk out on a stump over the water and I jump to the first island. And these islands are really long and really skinny. They're like one to 300 feet long, but only like 30 feet wide. And in the middle of each one are cut banks on both sides. So kind of like step-ups of dirt and roots and then grass that's like four or five feet long. So the islands are impossible to see over because the grass is like 10 feet tall, but they're really narrow. So I don't want to go too far away from where I've stashed my bike, so I decide to just fish the entire first island up and down. There's kind of a swamp on one side that I crossed on that down tree trunk, and I fished the river side, not the swamp side of this island, up and down for like 25, 30 minutes. And then I go back to the trunk across from my bike and I text Ben again. And I'm like, hey, again, this is where I am. This is what I did to get here. You're not here yet, but it's probably kind of hard to find. And I don't get a text back from him. And I think that's kind of weird because... Ben's a really punctual person. If he says he'll pick you up at 7, he'll pick you up between 6.59 and 7.01. He's that kind of guy. So I'm like, well, it is pretty far into this park, and I did go on a series of pathways, and, you know, it would be pretty hard to follow my directions, and maybe he's having trouble with the pin I dropped him, and I'll just keep fishing, and hoping to run into him pretty soon. So I fish down this swamp and I cross a shallow section of river and fish the bottom of the island 
And then I come back up and I text Ben again. And I'm like, okay, now it's been like 45 minutes and I still haven't seen you. This is where I am. Text me back if you're getting these. And I'm thinking, that's kind of weird. But below me is another island. And from that island, I'll be able to see across the river to the last bike path I was on. So I think if I swim downriver with my fishing pole, I can fish that bike path side of the river and Ben would be able to see me if he passed by on that bike path up on the sort of cliff side. So I swim downriver with my pole and I cross to this second island, the lower island, across from the bike path and I decide to fish the bike path side of that island and I'm fishing that whole section and I catch a fish and another fish and I'm fishing within view of the bike path and not only do I not see Ben pass but I don't see anybody pass there's nobody in this section of the park super remote and again on the second island I see zero pieces of trash see no evidence of campfires no evidence of anybody ever fishing there oftentimes on islands you can find like fishing line and old lures and things like that but I find nothing so I'm like man that's weird and I send Ben a series of texts explaining where I am, that I can see the bike path. And not only do I not get a response from him, but I don't see anybody bike past. Like, man, that's not good. So I fish all the way up to the last current section across from the bike path where I can see it clearly. Then I just stand there for a while and watch that path up in the park. And I don't see anyone pass again. So I'm starting to get stressed. And I'm like, what if he biked before I started looking at the path and then he was hiking these riverside paths and he went to one of the upper islands above where I was and his phone died and maybe that's why I'm not getting texts back from him but you know I don't see him up there I go back up to the top of this island where I can see upriver again and I don't see him anywhere and I start yelling Ben Ben and more disconcerting is the sun is set behind the hill now. It's not dark yet, but the sun set, so it's dusk. I'm kind of stressing out, and I'm like, what if he stashed his bike and hiked to the river near one of the lower islands, like below where I was? So I go to the bottom of island number two, and I call out his name in the sunset, and then I search a third island, and I'm now too stressed to fish, and so I'm kind of like, uh, what if he's somewhere down here, but I can't find him? And then I'm like, no, he, he's okay. He's a really good swimmer. He's super capable. Um, he, he, he's strong. He's been on rivers his whole life. He knows how to paddle. He knows how to swim. He's good at fishing. He, he'll be fine. So I fish this third island for a little while in the dusk, and I catch one good trout, and I'm trying to like enjoy that that I caught a beautiful native trout on this island where nobody fishes but in my mind I'm stressing out about Ben and I go in my waterproof backpack and I pull out my phone again and I text him a couple more times and I'm like all caps texting him you know those stress texts where you're like if all else fails let's meet at your truck at nine o'clock I hope you're okay exclamation point exclamation point no text back from him I search islands four, search island five. I go back to island three, 
it gets completely dark. And I'm like, ooh, maybe I should take care of myself at this point. So I text him again. It's almost, it's 845. I'm like, it's pretty dark. All caps text, if all else fails, let's meet at your truck at 930. I hope just your phone's dead or something. So I stash all my gear in my backpack, and then I have my fishing rod, and I go to the bottom of this island where I've scouted a section that I think I can swim across safely in the dark. I'm thinking, I should have brought a life jacket, but I don't have one. So I wade out until I get to the current and the turn in the river, and then I start swimming, and it's deep, and it's fast, and I swim across the river in the dark, but... I've swam a lot of rivers my whole life, so I'm okay. And I get across the river, and I drag myself out. And at that section, there's like this, it's not quite like a cinder block wall. It's like these huge cement blocks, and it's maybe 15 feet tall. And I tie everything to my backpack, and I rock climb up this wall, and I get to the fence, and I climb over the chain link fence, and I hop down on the path. And again, I open my backpack like, fuck, I hope that there is a text from Ben. And when I open my backpack and pull out my phone, there's a text from him. And he's like, bro, I am so sorry. I got the night wrong. And I thought you meant tomorrow night. And I've been hosting a party all night and I never looked at my phone for three hours. I'm so sorry. And I text back like, I'm just so glad you're okay. I was thinking that you were maybe drowned, stressing out, and got a message back. And... I was like, is there any chance you want to pick me up at Doris Ranch a mile and a half from here at the parking lot? He's like, I'm on my way. And I hike back up river, get my bike, bike a mile and a half back, and find Ben at the parking lot. And I hug him like, dude, I'm so glad you're okay. And he's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Must have been crazy stressful. And we throw my bike in the back, and we throw my pole in the back, and he gives me a ride home. And when I get home, there's Rue and Casper and Briley, three teenagers. And I tell them this story. And I was stressed all night. And they're like, let's go to the store. Let's buy snacks. Let's clear our minds. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And we hop in Casper's car. And we drive to Safeway. And we get snacks. And I think like, okay, the stressful night's over. It's all going to be good here now. But when we get home from the store, Jenny's out front. And as we get out of the car... She yells, get in the house, get in the house. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, get in the house. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And I look over at my neighbor's house, and there's a random dude there. And he looks like he does a healthy amount of meth. He's also kind of stumble drunk. He's like bald, about 45 years old, in a tank top and shorts, a little stumbly, carrying a mini bat in his hands. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Part two of last night. Meth dudes out front. I just had a crazy night at the river. Jenny's like, get in the house, get in the house. So the three teenagers go in the house, and Jenny's like, get in the house. And I'm like, uh, I'm not going inside until you go inside. I'm not leaving you out here with that dude, whoever that is. And she's like, okay. So she ducks into the house, and I follow her in, close the door. 
We're all like, what's going on? And she says, I heard some like weird banging noises. And so I went outside to see what our neighbor Eric was doing and thinking our next door neighbor's like doing construction or something at like 1030 at night, which is pretty strange. So I'm out there and I'm like, hey, Eric. And then all of a sudden out of his carport walks a complete stranger, the guy with the mini bat. And I'm like, who's that guy? And she said, well, that, that, that's what I said to him. Like, uh, can I help you? And he's like, you don't want to get involved in this. Your next door neighbor is a drug dealer. And he owes me a lot of money. And Jenny's like, nah, I think you got the wrong house. Eric's not a drug dealer. And the guy goes, Eric Mason? And Jenny's like, oh, shoot. Is he a drug dealer? Does he owe some guy money? And Jenny's like, okay, well, I'll leave you to it. She goes inside until we came home. And then as soon as we pulled up, she came outside again. And that's when we saw the guy. So we're all inside our house. And we're looking out the blinds. And the guy's next door, just like beating on the house with the bat. But our neighbor isn't there. His car isn't there. He's not home. So we're like, okay, we'll. We got to call the cops because that guy's super unsafe. But also, we don't want to call the cops right away because, like, he just saw both of us and he knows where we live. And if we call the cops and he comes back later after he's arrested and gets out of jail, like, he'll be pissed off at us. So we're like, okay, we'll wait five minutes. So we wait five minutes. Meanwhile, he's over there just, like, fucking things up. Like, it's loud. We're like, okay, all right, uh... We call the cops, call 911. We explain a dude that's like drunk and maybe on meth with a mini bat is next door trying to get at our neighbor and like breaking things on his house. And the police are like, okay, yeah, give us her address, blah, blah, blah. Normal 911 call. Except after we hang up, 15 minutes pass and no police come. Meanwhile, he's over there just like destroying things with a bat. So we wait, we wait, we wait. 20 minutes later, we call the police again. And we're like, guy's next door, and he's, like, super sketchy. And uh, he's, like, hoping my neighbor comes home, and he wants to hurt him, and says he owes him money, and he's a drug dealer, and he's, like, breaking things on his house. The police are like, what's the address again? And we're like, this is our second call. Like, you got to send somebody. And they're like, okay. And as I'm on the phone with 911, the guy comes outside, looks like it's dark, but he comes outside, hops in his vehicle, and drives away. So I'm like, okay, he's driving west on Van Avenue, and he's meeting up with Bailey. You got to get a cop off of Coburg, and somebody catch him up. This is the description of his vehicle. They're like, okay, we're sending people. Except they don't, and no cops show up. And now the guy's gone. So... Jenny grabs uh, a non-lethal pistol that she has with rubber bullets, and I grab a bat, and we go next door. And we go next door to see, like, what the damage was. And as we walk into his carport, our next-door neighbor's carport, there's, like, all this stuff ripped off the house, like lights and things that look sort of like cameras, and they're all in a pile 
and he's bashed all this stuff on the side of the house. And as Jenny and I are looking at all of this, all of a sudden we realize the guy's back, but he's in the backyard. So he drove his vehicle off and then snuck up on foot and came over maybe the back fence. And he's in the back of the house, like breaking in. So we're like, okay, go, go, go. So Jenny and I run back next door and we call 911 a third time. It's now been 45 minutes. We call 911 a third time and explain that the guy's breaking in the back of the house and that we were over there as he was breaking in. And we hear all these like crashing sounds. It sounds like he's like ripping apart the house from the inside out. And Rue runs up to us from the back of the house and she's like, the house is on fire. Eric's house is on fire. And we look next door and there's flames in the kitchen and we're still on with 911 and we're like he's burning the house down you have to fucking send somebody now and Rue gets on the phone and she's like I'm a terrified child you gotta send police now they're like we're sending fire trucks and we're like no don't send fire trucks send police and fire trucks there's a house fire there's a crazy guy in there finally Seven police cars, fire trucks, and an ambulance all roll up. And Rue and Casper and Briley hear the guy go over the back fence again. And the dogs behind us going nuts. This guy's going over the back fence. Cops run up to our neighbors who are now in the front of the street because they saw the fire. And a cop detains our neighbor who had just come out of his house thinking that it's the guy, the meth guy, but it's not. And our other neighbor had gone in the house right after the meth guy left and had put out the fire with a fire extinguisher and then come back out, and the police run up to him, too, thinking he's the guy. And we're like, no, that's our neighbor, Dave. It's a total mess. And we're kind of like, what the heck is going on? And then a cop comes up on our porch and knocks on our door. We're like... Dude, this night is insane. So a police officer is knocking on our door. And right as we're about to open it, Jenny turns to all of us and she's like, what if it's a crazy ex? I watch a lot of true crime. I bet it's a crazy ex. And we open the door and the police officer explains to us that our neighbor Eric's new girlfriend has a crazy ex. So Jenny's right. True crime. Pays to watch it, apparently. And this crazy ex had a series of domestic violence charges, had done some weird vandalism things in the past, and he'd been threatening them all day. So our neighbor had left and texted Jenny that we should put our car in the parking spot in front of his house so that the guy would think that there was someone home and he wouldn't be brave enough to come. But we didn't get that text because Jenny's phone was dead. So we didn't park our car there so it didn't get trashed by this guy. And anyway, he's a crazy ex. And, unbelievably, he's also a well-known local optometrist. So he's an eye doctor during the week. On the weekends, he gets hammered drunk and high and threatens and goes around and vandalizes the houses of people that his ex-wife now dates. But this time, he'd committed arson one. 
because of arson one, he's been arrested and he's probably going to prison for two or three years. So that, that was our night last night. This spring, I dropped my computer while out with my outdoor program class and destroyed it. Lost the hard drive, so I lost three episodes that I'd recorded. And then with a little bit of inertia, I just didn't start recording again. And it took me a long time to make a new episode. So I want to dedicate this episode to the three former students of mine who encouraged me so much to keep going with the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. So, first, Trin Collier, adventurer, extraordinaire, climber, Alaskan guide. I just want to say thank you for encouraging me to continue recording podcasts. And to my second former student, Ashia Diana from Sardinia, Italy, my exchange student who was so brave that she came for a year to Eugene, Oregon, and then jumped in an outdoor program and was outside with us every single day. Thank you for encouraging me to continue recording. And third, I'd like to thank my former student leader, Witch Shots, who I call Ghost, who's playing soccer in Spain right now like a baddie. So thank you, Wit, for always listening to these episodes and for encouraging me this summer when we were on the island to keep recording episodes and to go back to it. I appreciate that. And to everybody else who's listening to this podcast episode, thank you so much for listening to The Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-